If you really know Wayne's work and and um, have been collecting him, you know that a lot of it is on the smaller scale. But but what we do see is when we have larger ones or they see larger ones. And in the Byler show, there's many large paintings. People are very surprised, overwhelmed by the sheer scale that they didn't necessarily know he painted it. And, you know, when you look at a book and you see the same subject, then it's, you know, 12 by 15. And then you see another subject and it's 40 by 60. You, you can't necessarily tell with his paintings the size when you don't see the actual work. And so I think that is part of the reason that, frankly, it's it's not an issue. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maniker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information, as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. The Aquavella family, now in their third generation dealing art, have represented Wayne Thibault since 2011. The artist died on Christmas Day in 2021 at the age of 101. Thibault started as a commercial artist before becoming a teacher and serious painter. How serious? He once spent 32 years working on a canvas. Although he lived briefly in New York during the heyday of abstract expressionism, Thibault was long viewed as a California artist. All that has changed in the last 15 years. This month, the Fondation Beiler in Basel, Switzerland, has opened a new show of his work that should continue to broaden his reputation and appeal among European and Asian collectors. I took that as an opportunity to speak to Eleanor Aquavella about Thibault himself, his reputation, and his market. Eleanor Aquavella, thank you for taking the time to talk to me about uh, Wayne Thibault. My pleasure. Uh, one of my favorite topics. The proximal cause of this podcast is the opening at the Fondation Beiler in uh, Basel, Switzerland, of a, I guess it's a retrospective, but a major show of Wayne Thibault's uh, work. And that seems to coincide with uh, a huge growth in his auction market. Uh, just to frame that with some facts and figures, last year, 2022, some $53 million worth of Thibault's uh, works were sold at auction. In the last three years, 11 of the top 20 prices were achieved. So something's clearly going on for a man with a 80-some-odd-year uh, career who died recently at uh, 100, 101. Uh, I thought we could uh, both talk a, a bit about the uh, show and its effects and then talk uh, about uh, the market. So with that in mind, could you um, tell me a little bit about the Byler show? Yeah, so I was actually just there at the opening and it was just remarkable to see it all in person because it's something that we had been 
working on um, with Byler for some time, and it was great to see it come to fruition. It's a it's a mix of subjects and dates and sizes and mediums, which makes it you know really educational for people in Europe who might be less familiar with him um, and his work. So that was sort of the the idea behind it was that we wanted it really to to show the range of subjects he worked in and the range of materials that he is so, so talented in. So it has pastels, drawings, paintings um, from the 60s uh, up until, you know, 2020, I think it's probably the latest, maybe 2019. And, and it, um, it it's hung not chronologically, which is also interesting. It's actually sort of hung as, not even so much by subject, but really by um, just interesting pairings that Ulf Kuster, who's a great curator, Weiler, um, chose with great intention and purpose. They have a generally a very good sense, you know, when they do shows, they are always seem, you know, perfectly timed, prescient, uh, certainly not so sensitive to the market, but not insensitive uh, to to the market. And and they have a uh, a specific because they're in Switzerland, because people come to uh, uh, Basel every year for uh, the art fair, they have a a, kind of taste making uh, role in uh, the art world and not just, uh, I mean, obviously Europeans, but I think also a broader sort of global uh, audience. And I noticed uh, in the last year or two, Poly Auction sold a, uh, I think it was a deli counter or a bakery ca- counter for a certain $10 million, which suggests, given that Poly's, you know, so focused on mainland collectors and all, that there's a significant market in Asia. Yes, that's definitely true. They um, are very interested in the work. And that's another thing that uh, the Byler show, they, they have great Asian um, support and a great Asian audience. So that sort of ties in to that as well. But the they have always liked the work. They um, they. <clears throat> bid heavily and uh, enthusiastically. And, um, you know, I think actually a show in Asia would be a great thing because it would broaden perhaps um, the knowledge of what subjects people think they only want to stick to. Well, you 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 mentioned that sort of uh, perfectly. The subject matter is so interesting because, uh, uh, you know, he's associated with this the confectionaries, the pies, the lollipops, you know, this sort of certain kind of California sunny optimism. And I believe for a number of years, he was kind of somewhat, you know, dismissed as a California artist, sort of a regional figure rather than uh, a, a global artist. And and I, I think what you're sort of suggesting here is that one of the values of the uh, Byler show is to show a broader audience that he, there's more depth here. There's obviously landscapes, there's other subject matter, there's the great portraits that we, you know, at least have seen do quite well um, recently at auction, but I think we're, we're not really sort of uh, what people thought of as being a, a Tebow. Exactly. I mean, those, and those have great, you know, they're represented in great institutions and they've had support from Tebow, knowledgeable Tebow collectors, lovers, et cetera. But, but when people first start thinking about collecting or looking at Wayne's work, it seems that, you know, I mean, we get a lot of requests for cake pictures, you know, and it's just, there's so much more to him than that. I mean, those are fantastic, of course, but there's a lot more worth looking at and looking closely at because they're all painted 
basically the same way, just the subjects are different. I mean, they all have the colors and those amazing shadows he does and the outline of the shadows with those incredible colors that you don't even notice right away. And then you realize the the purples and oranges. Exactly. I mean, how crazy to make a shadow yellow and purple, but actually it reads wonderfully when you see it, you know, in person. So there's a lot to be learned from the Byler show, I think, for people because they they will see a real range in uh, in subjects and also in dates. And I think that helps expand also what people, you know, people want a 60s cake is a lot of the requests we get. And there's there's much more depth to, to great works um, in other decades and other subjects. Yeah, and I think that's something we can talk a bit more about. Also, size of uh, the works uh, it seems to be a key factor, and we're seeing certain things happen in the market where suddenly you know, very small pictures are selling for very large sums. Now, the, those are individual cases, but it's certainly there's a lot of, you know, Chardin-like, you know, tiny still lives that um, uh, uh, Thibault created. Uh, So before we get to the market, uh, and not to reduce uh, him to the market, especially as I think you're going to tell us, given his feelings about the art market, you guys have represented at Aquavella, you've represented uh, Thibaut for 12, I guess you're going on your 12th year since 2011. How how did the family get involved with uh, the artist? So unfortunately, uh, Wayne's son, Paul, who has a gallery, who had a gallery in San Francisco, which is, you know, still there today. But unfortunately, he passed away in 2010. And they had been uh, the gallery that represented him for many years. And so my father actually wrote Wayne a letter and asked him if he would like to be represented by a gallery in New York. And if so, we would love to be that be that gallery and talk to him about it. And and so then uh, Wayne wrote a very nice letter back. He was not an email uh, or texting person. He did have a cell phone, but it was a flip phone interesting fact. And so he wrote a very lovely letter. He had the most beautiful handwriting, you know, cursive, and he would write these very wonderful letters on yellow uh, lined paper. And I have a whole drawer full of them, which make me very happy. But anyway, he'd always put doodles on them, another little interesting factoid. So anyway, he wrote back to my father and he said, I would love to talk more about that. And so they had a phone call. And then I actually went out there to visit him with John Wilmerding because we had sort of agreed that we would start representing him. And then we'd we'd start with a big retrospective curated by John Wilmerding, who was the great um, American curator at Princeton at the time. And so we went out and had a wonderful visit. And that's when we saw Wayne's house and um, met his wife, Betty Jean, who was still alive at the time, and just had a wonderful sort of two days with him and looked at all these amazing pictures that he had kept of his own work from all different periods and subjects and came up with an idea to do a retrospective where we we have four rooms in the gallery that we usually hang, you know, if we do a large show, we'll use all four. And so we had a room full of food pictures, a room full of figures, a room full of landscapes, and a room full of cityscapes, kind of. Um, And so that was sort of how we divvied up the show. And it was kind of the first big show in New York in in a long time. And so people were really excited to see that much work, I think, and and sort of see him at the forefront of, you know, the art market, art world, again, which hadn't been, you know, it's been mostly California um, for a long time since Alan Stone had passed away about a decade before. How much of that is just um, not having, I mean, you, you talk about yourself as a gallery in New York, and yes, you are based in New York, but... Uh, 
you know, that said, you are get a New York gallery with global uh, reach. How, how much is his reputation that way a function of sort of his personality and lack of sort of marketing from a big uh you know, uh, gallery, you know, uh, his son represented him before that, Alan Stone, who was certainly, you know, an amazing collector and a, a, a fantastic gallerist, but very much an old school uh, hobbyist ga- gallerist from a different ki- kind of era. And I guess what I'm asking is, 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 are the limitations of his reputation a function of, of lack of marketing, a function of just a biased you know, against, you know, these cute pop pictures. I know he's not a pop artist, but he's always uh, thought of that that way. Or I, I guess I want you to give us some sense of his personality because it sounds like that too has an element uh, of why he didn't, his, char, his star was always uh, recognized, but it didn't shine so bright. And I think it may be in part because he was interested in painting more than he was in self-promotion. That's very well said. Um, that's basically exactly true. I mean, the things he cared about were painting, painting, drawing, making art, and then his family, obviously, and tennis and friends. And that was kind of the end of his list of, oh, and teaching, of course, teaching was one of his favorite favorite things to do. And he always said it kept him, you know, painting and teaching kept him young and alive for, you know, as long, I mean, 101's pretty long run. So, I, I mean, he, he was sort of totally uninterested in pricing, in the market, in making money. He, you know, the more money he had, it had no impact on his life whatsoever. Um, I mean, of course, that, you know, of course it has an impact on your life, but he didn't change materially the way he lived in any way. He was not interested in material things. He lived in the same house for 50 some odd years. And, um, you know, he didn't have no, he was, he was no frills, a no frills kind of guy. And that was how he liked it. I mean, he just wanted to paint. He wanted people to see his painting. That was what interested him. He wanted us to have shows and he wanted us to have shows, not so we could sell the work and make money for him, but so that other people could come and see his work. And he w- sometimes would come to the openings. I mean, certainly um, he came more early on when we started representing him. And then he got, you know, just a li- he just would say, I'm a little tired, which I said, I understand you're 98 or whatever he was at the time. So he wouldn't come. But when he did... I can't tell you how many of his students would come up. He would remember them. They would talk. They were so excited to see his show. And he was so happy that they came to see it. And he was just really a very down-to-earth, wonderful, warm man. And the market and promotion of his own work was just totally not of interest. You you mentioned to me in another conversation that he uh, wasn't interested in there being a a catalog resume uh, of his work. And you suggested that in part was a little bit of this sort of bias against not wanting the work to be viewed in terms of, uh, you know, the market, though catalogs resume are, uh, uh, you know, long-standing historical tools with many other uses beyond uh, the art market. I guess what I'm asking is, are there plans for one in the future? I mean, it's it's always hard. I mean, there are, are, are other ways to function without a an official bound catalog ra- raisonné and, and, and markets adapt to that. But are there plans to create some sort of a catalog or is that just honoring his wishes means that we'll have to adapt? Uh, there isn't a plan as of now. Um, I think the family sort of agrees with Wayne about not having one and his thinking is kind of, it, it just makes it too much uh, of a promotional marketing tool, but actually 
I mean, we as people who represented him for a long time and own a lot of his work and have sold a lot of his work would love it if there was a catalog resume because it's very helpful. And um, we get a lot of inquiries about look at this Tebow and what about this? And, you know, it's just it's complicated in an art market when there isn't a catalog resume. So I would I wouldn't say there will never be a catalog resume, perhaps, because, you know, I've got a few years left to try and do some convincing. But um, as of now, there are no plans for one. Where the works come from is quite helpful in figuring out, you know, is it it's obvious it came from an Alan Stone show. You know, you see the labels and right. you can kind of work around it that way. So, so far, I mean, it. it it's not a problem. It's just, it's very nice to be able to look. And, and people love to say, oh, there's only eight of these lollipops or whatever it is. So, you know, people like data as you yourself do. Uh, I uh, My favorite thing. And the no, no, knowing the number of candy apple paintings uh, of five candy apples, seven candy apples, whatever. Yes, that is. It, uh, it would all be uh, helpful. But anyway, it's okay. Well, We're we're not suffering. Well, that does that brings up a couple of interesting th- things. I mean, he he painted many themes repeatedly over his career, right? It's not just like, oh, the candy apples, the confectionery works are from the 60s. There are ones from different periods. And one of the things I've noticed in in the market over the last uh, few years is the bias. I think there still is a bias towards 60s works, but the the bias is lessening. There's more works, especially from, you know, the uh, 2000 to 2010 or even, you know, a, a a little bit later, selling pretty much, you know, in frequency and price as there are works from from the 60s. And people seem to be moving past, you know, needing that sort of historical date and judging the works on the imagery. And, you know, I, I'm not a connoisseur, but it it is interesting that, you know, well into advanced age, it is hard to tell a difference in terms of you know, his brush strokes between the 90-year-old uh, Wayne Tebow and the, I don't know, 40-year-old uh, Wayne Tebow. I'm, sh- I'm sure there are people who can tell that 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 difference, but it, it doesn't look like the market is, uh, uh, you know, or is overcoming that bias. Yes, I agree. And, and I, I am glad that that's happening because actually I think the work, the later work, a lot of it is just as good as the 60s. I mean, th- there's always been a premium on the 60s. We've been really trying to dispel some of that because it, um, you know, we think there's a lot of really good work from all the decades, frankly, and we've sold a lot of good work from all the decades. I think um, the one thing I sort of notice is is the the work much, you know, towards the end of his life is very thickly painted, and there's real buildup of paint on the canvas. And I think, you know, it. 98, he finally sort of felt like I can afford as much oil paint as I want and I don't have to be so careful with it. And I mean, I'm not even joking when I say that. I mean, I really think that that is something that would have entered into his mind. It's all too believable. Of course. And I also think that, you know, the quality of paint has changed. And so maybe, I mean, I'm not an artist, luckily for all of you, but, um, he, you know, he could layer it maybe more effectively than he felt he could in the 60s. And he also, you know, he's had a lot of success in his life. And so he finally felt like he could sort of cut loose a little and experiment with some of his layering and and just the freeness and the strokes you see in some of the beach landscapes he did. Those have real kind of fluidity and and a lot of, uh, they're like, I, I mean, messy is the word I'm thinking of, but 
I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean that, you know, he, he just seemed to sort of let loose a little more towards the end. No, the, the, all the beach landscapes seem like of a different character. Like he's trying to get at some sort of hazy, you know, beach effect and the, the, the faces and bodies kind of are almost like embedded inside, you know, this sort of, uh, pinkish uh, beige sand, uh, you know, painting around, around it. I mean, I, look, I think that's what's so interesting about seeing more of him as an artist. You know, the tennis pictures are fascinating. The um, Those portraits, that that great sort of Wimbledon, to, to put the two together, the great Wimbledon uh, painting of the woman toweling her face that sold, um, I mean, all, all of those things, each one is sort of a more of a, a, a revelation uh, uh, than another. Uh, it does feel like, I, I and mean, maybe this is just the natural effect of his his passing and all, but it does feel like it, it's taken a while for the market to build up uh, around him. I mean, the 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 two big initial events for the auction market were the Allen Stone uh, sales that took place in two thousand seven uh, and twenty eleven, and, and and I mean, I guess what they you know. Like the um, the Judd sale in a few years before that, that you know there was the the sort of astonishment that so much work could be sold, and you know the first sale actually wasn't that much work; it was a handful of paintings. But the second one in 2011, I think, was like 18 uh, uh, paintings, and that, that that seemed to go swimmingly. Yeah, a lot. I mean, it, it was we were very um, pleasantly surprised by how much the market could absorb, actually. And, um, and, you know, in addition to those sales, I mean, Allen Stone Gallery or Allen Stone Projects, I think it's known now, was still having Tebow shows and, you know, Paul Tebow Gallery has still been having Tebow shows. And so there's a lot of, uh, a lot of work that has been shown over the last 20 years, but even more so in the last 10 years. And, and the market is kind of stronger for it. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. We were when we first started working with him, we were so pleasantly surprised by the um, the range of collector for his work. I mean, you know, people that have incredible modern collections collected, and and they, and he's an artist that people really collected depth because once they once they understand how much there is there to to sort of lean into, and as far as subject, date, all of that, they you know, contemporary people have Wayne Tebow and, and as I said, modern and old masters and they have Tebow. I mean, it really runs the gamut, but um, yeah, I mean, some people just like kind of one of all the iconic subjects. I mean, you know, apples, paint cans, ice cream, cake, and then landscape figure. And they, or they have several of the same subject and they think that's interesting in the different, in the different mediums. I mean, so there's really, there's a lot you can, you can go deep with, with Wayne and not get bored of looking at it at home. That's for sure. And we know because we, we are also big collectors of his work. And you're not bored at home with them. We're not bored at home now. And they're, the size, I mean, you know, we're we're in this interesting period. There's suddenly a lot of um, market activity around Magritte and Dolly uh, with these very tiny um, paintings that have sold for, you know, five, uh, uh, ten, twenty million dollars. And, you know, we saw this um, remarkable Syrah 
you know, small version uh, of his work sell for 120 million. So it, we're, we're establishing that it doesn't have to be some massive work for people to see value, and and not all by any means, but a, a lot of his works are quite small. And and it's interesting you bring up old masters and and remind you of these kinds of uh, old master, uh, you know, still lives and uh, and studies. Do do collectors, you know, do they have to get over that I'm going to spend a lot of money on a relatively small p- picture? Does that not really concern them? No, it, that, that's not really a concern because I think if you really know Wayne's work and and um, have been collecting him, you know that a lot of it is on the smaller scale. But but what we do see is when we have larger ones or they see larger ones, and in the Byler show, there's many large paintings. People are very surprised and sort of very, you know, overwhelmed by the sheer scale that they didn't necessarily know he painted in. And, you know, when you look in a book and you see the same subject, then it's, you know, 12 by 15, and then you see another subject and it's 40 by 60. You, you can't necessarily tell with his paintings the size when you don't see the actual work. And so I think that is part of the the um, part of the reason that, frankly, it's it's not an issue. I mean, people are just used to seeing mostly small ones, and and when they do see a large one, it's very it's a wow moment for sure. Well, I, I let me let me plump uh, your market that then uh, because I, I've always assumed that the thing holding back the Tebow market from much higher prices is the size of the works and. I believe the the pinball machines that the Cybels sold a couple of years ago was quite lo- large and right and it achieved twenty million dollars and that the limitation on getting to those uh, price points for Tebow is not his stature as an artist not the subject matter not even you know sort of collector demand it's just that sense of there being big wall power work and and the 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 work that always comes to mind is the um, Barney Ebsworth uh, had bought. Uh, I believe privately, but you know the previously sort of the biggest priced uh, uh, Tebow, a, a bakery counter from the the sixties that was not included in his um, estate sale at at Christie's, and that you know seemed to me at the time a missed opportunity for the market to set you know a a twenty five million dollar uh, uh, price for for Tebow. That that price came a few years later with the uh, uh, pinball machines. Uh, and I guess what I'm saying is, I presume that you kind of need those kinds of works for that, you know, for the next price to be achieved. And and obviously, you're you're not so interested in that every work sell for 25 million. It just creates the uh, perception of value and understanding and stature that helps you. I assume privately when you sell sell works, sell them at you know other price points at at, at the now looks like the ceiling ten million and and it seems like there's a lot of activity in the sort of three to five million dollar range. Yes, absolutely. And you know, back to our data point again. I mean, every every single person who's even a little bit interested in the art world seems to have an ArtNet account. And that is the first thing everybody does is when they're looking at anything, they go and look at ArtNet. Well, they. I'm going to interrupt you here and say they should use their live art account and get it for free. But go on. <laughs> yes, that's true. And so, and maybe they do. By the way, I shouldn't assume that they are using Artnet. But my point is, they want to know what these things sell for at auction. Of course, it doesn't have anything to do with condition. They don't talk about that. They don't talk about 
you know, you don't, you don't see the whole picture when you look at that. You just see what something is sold for. And that's what people base things on. So certainly from an art dealer's perspective, having a $20 million price for work just means that that ceiling has been moved now to 20 or 25 or whatever it is, because I don't think you could buy that painting now, even for 25, but that's another topic. So it, it it helps with the market because it gives people confidence. You know, when they see a big price like that, okay, it's a very large painting. It's really an interesting, great one. It's pinball machines, which he is a subject he's done over and over and over. And it has references to other artists um, in those pinball machines and a, a reflection of the art that was being made at the time, which was more sort of minimalism and abstract. And Wayne was obviously, I guess, somewhat of a minimalist, depending on which painting you're looking at, but certainly not abstract. So I just want to go back to sort of this market rise. The, you know, you guys uh, get involved, but it's a pretty sort of fallow, at least auction market. Uh, you know, you guys may have been selling lots of uh, work, but it's not coming to auction. We're not setting public prices. We're not giving the signals to people that uh, enable them to have the confidence to either bring work to uh, uh, sale or, you know, bid more aggressively. Uh, until about 2016. So, the, you know, there's maybe it's the five-year period that you guys are really building confidence in, in, in the market. It could be uh, other things. But since 2016, there's been kind of a steady uh, rise, as I mentioned at the beginning till last year's 53 uh, million. You know, markets don't always go straight up. So, you know, certainly if it pulls back, back it's still you know, a lot more than it was in, say, tw 2016. Is this just um, sort of a function of the growth of the market, the same thing. I mean, uh, we haven't discussed the Great Morgan Library show uh, that I believe was just works on paper. But you know, is it is it is it just a you need more of these shows? We need more people to sort of have those aha or or, or oh wow moments um, uh, in, in some of these you know museum shows to to then filter into their uh, uh, buying habits, or is there, there sort of some other you know context we we should know? I you know. We we at Aquavella had two shows. The first one was the big one we were talking about that John Wilberding um, curated for us, and that was in 2012. And then we had another show in 2014. And then we started doing these more specific shows that, that would highlight a, a specific body of work of his. Um, and by body, I mean subject. So we did a, a, a show called California Landscapes, and that was in 2008. That was early 2018, so a little after what you're talking about. But that was showing... Diebenkorn and Thibault as two really amazing landscape painters side by side. And for whatever reason, Diebenkorn had been a, more of an American artist than a California artist. And Wayne had always been a little bit more of a California artist. And so that was what we were trying to show was that, you know, he was, he's collected by the, the whole world. I mean, it's, the market's really global, but also that, um, you know, not just in California did people love his work. That was sort right. of the point. And so we, we sort of kept having these shows in New York and I think more people would see them. And I think also just in the context of other shows that we do, it sort of helps to build confidence. I mean, you know, showing being shown in a gallery alongside Picasso and Matisse and Giacometti and de Kooning and Pollock and, you know, whoever else you want to pluck um, to brag about, you know, um, that, that all 
helps people see him in a different way. And and most of the museums had shown him in California. They were really California centric. And he was huge, a huge supporter of those institutions out there. I mean, you know, SF MoMA has an amazing collection, the Crocker. And those are all due, I mean, in large part to Wayne and his family's generosity. And so, you know, it was very California centric. So we were just trying to broaden his um, acceptance as as really one of the great American painters. I mean, we think of all time and you guys can uh, make your own decision. And certainly the Morgan Library show was an amazing show because it was all these different uh, materials that he, you know, ink pencil, charcoal, pastel, watercolor. And I mean, he is brilliant in all of them. If, you know, if you don't have that catalog, it's really worth seeing because it really shows the range of talent that he had. Um, and that, yeah, that, that show was in 2018 too. So there were kind of two shows in 2018. And then we did a mountain show, which was all mountains, which, you know, people had seen like one randomly every few years pop up at an auction for very little money. And they were sort of missing the point of um, what Wayne was trying to accomplish with that series. And so we did a mountain show and it, I mean, it really changed that market drastically. Um, for those specific works. And, uh, you know, all of that just helps build um, a a strong, healthy market that really shows and reveres an extremely talented and just one of the most wonderful people that you could have ever known. So he deserves everything, all the success he had, he really earned and deserved. It is a couldn't happen to a nicer guy uh, uh, kind of situation. But uh, like I said, I mean, what's interesting is um, you know, markets are driven by leadership, and there are not a lot of artists with a high volume of work that is high quality that spans subject matter years and 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 so forth. And so, uh, uh, Thibault seems to have many of the attributes that would make for um, an artist who could provide some level of market leadership. Uh, you know, fifty three million in a year is very very significant, but it's still relatively small compared to, say, the 224 million that in Magritte's that were sold at auction uh, uh, last year, the 350, 400 in, in Monet's. But, but, I guess what I'm getting at is it's a leap to get there, but it's not out of the question. A, a lot of it is around supply. A lot of it is around the infrastructure that we're talking about, museum shows, good scholarship, good um, you know sense of inventory and people understanding uh, the pricing. I guess that leads to the last sort of que- question is, uh, you mentioned he kept a lot of work. I assume the estate still has a substantial amount of uh, work and, you know, that'll be managed in whatever forms, uh, you know, foundation sales, uh, so forth, shows over the next uh, few years. Yeah. So a lot of the, uh, basically all of the work is in um, Wayne's foundation and it's called the Thibault Family Foundation. I'm not sure that's interesting or relevant, so please feel free to remove it if you would like. Um, and Wayne did that intentionally because he wanted the ability to lend works to institutions should they want them and have it be a cost efficient sort of way for them to put a show together because it all comes from one place. And he, you know, the, the foundation has works from all periods and all subjects. And um, so, you know, a, 
a significant amount of the, well, not a significant amount, but you know, there's a fair amount of work in that Byler show that's really outstanding and I think relevatory for some people. And, and it's in the Tebow Foundation. Because again, Wayne and his family were not interested in the monetary business of art. They're interested in the educational. And, and now that Wayne has passed, you know, they want to make sure that that his sort of memory lives on through exhibitions, hopefully around the world. Uh, look, the the managing uh, an artist's afterlife is probably one of the key features of creating value in these markets that's often uh, overlooked. I mean, the the work that the Bacon Foundation has done, the Giacometti Foundation, I mean, we can sort of, almost every uh, uh, artist who has sort of market leadership also has an institution <clears throat> that's mindful of their reputation, uh, of where work is, of generating sales and uh, being a source for uh, uh, sales if necessary. Uh, I mean, it, 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 it seems to be one of the essential features of the art, art, art market, maybe less coordinated than, than we, we'd like, but um, uh, happens, you know, with some regularity. I would just say that, of course, foundations have to sell because they have to raise money to pay for themselves and for the, the causes that they donate to. So, you know, th that will still be sort of a, a good relationship of ours or I don't know, something, something not so. It's a, it's a good source of um, uh, work in the f future. And, and you know, I, we I, have a great relationship with them and we've really enjoyed working with them and we all have, you know, Wayne's best interest at heart. So that sounds like a perfect way to, to end it. Eleanor, I can't thank you enough for this. It's been, been a, a wonderful education. Oh, thanks, Marion. It's a pleasure to talk to you always. Thank you for joining us at the Artelligence Podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin, who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Artelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it.